turn with me uh, to the end of Micah. We're going to pick up uh, with the end of uh, the book of Micah in our uh, look through the minor prophets in the series. So we're going to uh, read the last few verses of, of Micah in chapter 7, and then we'll flip the page and read the first uh, eight verses of the book of Nahum. So if you would please uh, turn there with me. This is the word of the Lord. Micah 7, beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And flipping the page to Nahum, beginning in verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We also thank you that on account of your perfect righteousness, you are also vengeful against all wickedness. And as we study your word and the revelation of your character in it, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might honor and glorify you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the most uh, popular, uh, well-known arguments against God and against the Christian religion is is that argument of the problem of evil. And if uh, if God is all-powerful, the argument goes, if God's all-powerful, if if he is good, then how can evil exist? You've likely heard this problem before, and it's a problem that's worth considering. It is a question we all have to wrestle with. Why? Why, if God is all-powerful, if he is all-good, why does he permit evil uh, to exist in the world? Why is there suffering? In other words, is, is God truly just? Is he truly good? These are, these are important questions that need to be asked. And, and as we look through Scripture, we can see how God's people have always wrestled with uh, this question. 
Uh, the Psalms are, are full of, of examples of this, of, of laments of God's people as they, as they wrestle through these issues. Uh, one of the, the common refrains in the Psalms is, How long, O Lord? How long have you turned your face away from us? Maybe you yourself have asked that question. So is there, is there any answer to the problem of evil? Is God good? Is he just? Does he notice and take care uh, and, and care about our sufferings and about our pains and the trials that we go through? Well, the book of Nahum is the minor prophet's answer to the problem of evil. The opening passage that we just read and in the book as a whole, these three chapters this is God's answer to his people concerning the evil and the suffering that they were facing and that they have experienced. It's God's way of telling his people, I have seen all that you have gone through, all that you have suffered. None of it was lost on me, and I'm going to make it right. The message of Nahum is that the righteous king, this king who was promised to come, the one we've been looking at and thinking about and considering throughout this whole series... This king is going to come, he's going to judge, and he's going to punish all wickedness and unrighteousness, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to set everything right. So how does Nahum show us this? How how does he demonstrate? How does he give us this answer? Well, I want to look at uh, two things here. I want to consider first and examine how Nahum fits into the story, the larger story of the minor prophets. That'll help us understand his message better. So first I want to do that. And then second, I want to consider how Nahum helps shape our story. How it helps uh, give us some understanding in our own lives. So that's where we're we're going this morning. And so first, in order to understand Nahum's message, uh, we need to understand how he fits into this larger uh, unified story of the Minor Prophets. And so in order to do that, we're going to look back at the two previous prophets, the the one we just read from, Micah, and then the one before him, uh, Jonah. And one of the things I I love about the minor prophets is that they all connect to one another in such interesting and and very creative and just wonderful uh, ways. It's very clear they're meant to be read as as one unified story. And there's a very uh, clear example of this, this kind of, of connection and phenomenon in our passage today. And that's why we read from the end of Micah, as well as the beginning of Nahum. And in fact, Jonah is connected to this. So you can think of these three prophets, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, as one almost uh, subsection uh, being linked together in the larger story of, of the minor prophets. Well, we didn't look at Jonah, though, in the series. We, we skipped over him. Uh, I, I trust that you are somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, God's prophet, who uh, he flees from his task to go and uh, preach the message uh, uh, to uh, the city of Nineveh. And you'll, you'll notice that Nahum is, is also, uh, uh, his message is, is directed toward the city of Nineveh. So you see the connection there already. Uh, but Jonah, he, he flees from God's uh, call. He goes in the exact opposite direction. He tries to, uh, he hops on a boat, uh, which uh, is on its way to the city of Tarshish. And uh, he, he's trying to flee from God, but God 
whips up the storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. A great big fish swallows Jonah. And eventually, reluctantly, Jonah goes to Nineveh. You, you, you're familiar with the story. So he goes and he, he reluctantly preaches the message there. Hey guys, if, you, if you're interested, God can forgive your sins, but don't, don't think about it too hard. You know, we don't really... No, he, he preaches the message reluctantly and, and, God, and, and, and the people of Nineveh repent. It's a miracle. God relents of the disaster that he was bringing about, about onto the city. And what's interesting is at the end of Jonah, we see that he's upset. He didn't want Nineveh uh, to repent. He didn't want Nineveh to be spared. And that's why he fled from God in the first place. And, and Jonah tells God, he says, This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's Jonah 4, verse 2. Well, where did Jonah learn that about God? Where did he learn that that is God's nature, that is God's character? Where did he learn that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and merciful? Well, Jonah learned that from his Bible. He learned that from the words of Moses, who, who wrote these words in Exodus chapter 34. God's self-revelation and his self-description where God revealed himself to Moses in this way. God speaking, saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, Jonah, he knew this. He knew who his God was. And so he fled from Nineveh because he didn't want that great city of Nineveh, one of the major cities, a capital city in the Assyrian Empire. He didn't want them to be the recipient of God's mercy. Well, that raises the other question. Why didn't Jonah want Assyria and Nineveh to receive God's mercy? We'll get to that in in just a moment. But first, notice... Now, Jonah's quoting this self-description of God, and, and Micah, likewise, keeps this theme at the end of his book that we read earlier. He also quotes from God's self-revelation, and he, he, asks, he starts by asking this rhetorical question, Who is like you, O God? Who is a God like you? And, and that itself is a, is a play uh, of, on words with Micah's own name, which means, Who is like Yahweh? He asks, who is like you, O God, one who pardons iniquities and passes over transgression, who does not retain his anger forever, who delights in steadfast love? Micah's pondering and and thinking on and, and praying these words back to God, these words from Exodus chapter 34, the same words that Jonah uh, used as well. You can see the connections there. But there's something interesting going on. There's a portion of God's self-description from Exodus 34 that neither Jonah nor Micah quote. There's an aspect of God's nature that neither of these prophets highlight in their message, but Nahum does. And maybe you've already noticed it. Maybe you've already picked up on it. God's self-revelation of his character from Exodus concludes with this phrase. But... Who will by no means clear the guilty. 
but a God who will visit the iniquity of the people. So all three of these prophets, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum, they quote from Exodus 34, but with different emphases. Jonah and Micah emphasize God's mercy, but Nahum emphasizes God's wrath. In Jonah, the Assyrian city of Nineveh was the object and recipient of God's mercy and forgiveness. But in Nahum, that same city of Nineveh, a generation later, is now the object and recipient of God's justice and his wrath. And with that historical and biblical uh, uh, background in place, we can better understand the powerful message of Nahum. You see, the book of Nahum is God's answer to the problem of evil. Nineveh's destruction and fall is an example. It's it's an image. It's, It's a demonstration and a proof that God will not allow wickedness and evil to endure forever. Well, why is that? Why, why was Jonah so angry that Nineveh was spared in the first place? Nineveh was a prominent city in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were one of the first great empires of the world. And they were best known in, in our Old Testament, in our, in our Bibles, as the nation that would conquer Israel. And that they would exile and, and bring into exile the northern tribes. And the Assyrian Empire and and its army, it was one of the most ruthless and violent and evil regimes the world had known up to that point. Uh, They were were pagans and idolaters. They they oppressed the poor and needy. They committed heinous war crimes and violent acts against their people and against those they conquered, especially the people of Israel, the people of God. And because of how wicked and evil they were, and because of how God's people could look around and see of all, all the immense destruction and despair that they had received at the hands of these Assyrians, we can understand how they would rightly be confused. How they could say, God, we understand we have sinned against you. We were deserving of punishment, and we were deserving of this, this exile. But what about these Assyrians? Are you just turning a blind eye to them? Do you, do you care about what they're doing to us? About the affliction and the, the destruction they've brought upon us and upon our lives? Does God care about all this injustice? Is he good? Will he permit this evil to go on indefinitely? And the message of Nahum is that God does care. That he will bring judgment against this evil nation of Nineveh and justice against all those who have been oppressed. Chapters 2 and 3 of Nahum show how God will do that, how he's going to actually raise up another nation. The nation of Babylon is going to rise up and conquer Assyria, and he's going to use them uh, to destroy Nineveh and conquer Assyria and bring judgment upon them. But what's fascinating is that Nahum does not actually mention Nineveh or Assyria or Babylon or any of these nations anywhere in chapter 1. And the reason for that is that this story isn't just about Nineveh. But this, uh, this story, uh, using Nineveh here, is an example. It's a, it's a picture. It's a figure of the kind of justice that God will bring against all wickedness and all evil. And that's the message of Nahum. And in this way, Jonah and Nahum, they provide a very helpful uh, 
contrast for us. The message of Jonah is one, one of hope. If, if God can bring a city like Nineveh to repentance and have mercy on them, then this mercy truly is available for anyone, for sinners like me. The message of Nahum is one of judgment. God will by no means clear the guilty. He will bring judgment upon all wickedness. And I was once the object of that wrath. But because of Christ, I have received mercy. And moreover, I can know that he has noticed the pain and suffering of his people. And he will answer. The city of Nineveh then and in the book of Nahum is an example that God will uh, restore all things. That he will uh, tear down all evil regimes. That he will topple all uh, evilness and wickedness in the world. This would be great news for the people in exile as they waited for God's deliverance. God does care. He, he does see the injustice of the world. He does notice the sufferings and the tears of his people. And that's why Nahum will declare, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, and he will by no means clear the guilty. So that is the the great theme of Nahum, that God will punish the injustice of every age. He's not turned a blind eye. But now having considered this historical background of Nahum and why this would be comforting news for God's people who were taken into exile. Let's consider how this passage can help shape our story as well. Well, it's uh, it's the December It's the Christmas season. I love Christmas music. I've been listening to Christmas music for weeks. I started listening in October. I can't help myself. I just love it so much. And I'm also uh, a product of the 90s, which means I love punk and emo and rock music. And I still have not grown out of that phase. And uh, so May Day Parade, excellent, excellent group, excellent band. But they released a Christmas single uh, a few years ago called I'm With You, and it's very on brand, it's very angsty, it's very sad, um, but the reason it's, it's sad is because it's a song about all the people that they've lost over the years, and how Christmas is not going to feel the same way without them. And uh, the reason that song can be so meaningful, it can hit close to home, is because that's true of many of us. Uh, there's a lot of things to celebrate during this wonderful time of the year, but there's also a lot of grief that can go along with it. And there are members of our church family who have gone through and are, are continuing to go through very significant health issues. And there are some here who will be celebrating Christmas without loved ones, and, and perhaps even for the first time. Not every Christmas uh, is always the, the picture-perfect hallmark kind of, of holiday and celebration. And what Nahum tells us is that God cares. And he he has seen the the tears we have cried and the loss that we have felt, the suffering and the trials that we're going through, and that he cares. And that he uh, promises that he will make it right. And sometimes we are wronged by others. Sometimes we're afflicted just because we live in in a fallen and broken world. God knows this. 
and he knows uh, who are his. The book of Nahum, it focuses heavily on on God's judgment there. But there are glimpses of hope to be found. And and one of those is at the the end of the passage I read. Look back at at verse seven with me. And it says, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who have taken refuge in him. See, that that is good news for us. Like God is our stronghold that he he knows who have taken refuge in him. I I love that expression. uh, Those who have taken refuge in him. It's a wonderful description of, of the Christian. The author of Hebrews uses this phrase to describe God's people as well. In, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, uh, he talks about how God is both promised with his word and sworn by his own name uh, so that his people would be certain of God's unchanging character and the, the assurance of his, his plan of redemption, that he's going to save them. And so the author of Hebrews then says that God, God did this He gave this promise and this oath, quoting here, so that by two unchangeable things, referring to God's promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, there's our phrase, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And I want us just to stop there and consider the, the logic of the passage from Hebrews chapter 6. There's the hope that's set before us. That's God's redemption through the person and work of Christ. And we can hold fast to this hope because of two unchangeable things. God's promise in his word and the fact that he has sworn to fulfill those promises by his own name. And we can know for certain that these two things are true and unchanging because it's impossible for God to lie. And therefore, if we have taken refuge in him, we can have strong encouragement. I love that. That's something you can take to the bank. That's something you can hang your hat on. That's something you can trust in. This is what it means to find your refuge in God. What an amazing promise and encouragement we see in Nahum then is that God knows all those who take refuge in him. And this is our our comfort and our hope that God knows us, not in a superficial way, not as acquaintances, but as children, as sons and daughters. You see, that is the, the answer to the problem of evil. That God does know. He does care. He's, he's seen every tear you've cried. And he has promised in his word that not even a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly father. He has seen. He knows. He cares. And he has done something about it. He has given the definitive answer through the work on the cross. As we, we bring our time to a close here this morning, I want to consider that just a little bit more. How can we know that God sees our anguish and that he cares about our pain? It's because of the cross. The eternal son of God took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And yet this God man was a man of sorrows. 
the baby who was laid in a manger, who was the king of kings and lord of lords. He was on a mission to reconcile his people back to God through his atoning death on the cross. And this perfect once for all sacrifice of his own body, uh, Christ now serves as our great high priest. And we know uh, from elsewhere in, in Hebrews how we have a great high priest. He is one who is able to sympathize with our weakness. We can take comfort in knowing uh, that he has faced all the same pain and loss and sorrow that we have. That none of it is lost on him. And we can also take comfort in knowing that he is coming again. His first coming was as a suffering servant, but his second coming will be as the king of all the earth. He will come again in power and in glory. This is the kind of of power and glory that he will come in, uh, as, as Nahum describes, with judgment and wrath. I'm going to make another uh, plug uh, for this book that we mentioned earlier in the service. Uh, J.C. Ryle's uh, uh, collection of Advent uh, devotionals. I hope that you will pick up a copy and read it. I had no idea just how well it was going to fit in with our series in the Minor Prophets. But I've been so helped by reading the first few entries in that. Well, this it book, the book makes the point that sometimes during the season of Advent, we can uh, focus only on the first Advent. Or the first coming of Christ. But that that would be a mistake. Because Christ is coming again. And so Ryle, he's considering what this second coming will look like. And so he writes this. He says, That same Jesus who was born in the manger of Bethlehem and took upon him the form of a servant, who was despised and rejected of men and often had no place to lay his head, who was condemned by the princes of this world, beaten, scourged, and nailed to the cross. That same Jesus shall himself judge the world when he comes in his glory. To him the Father has committed all judgment. To him at last every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. This is scary news for the unbeliever. Just as the book of Nahum was was terrifying news to the wicked nations and the wicked people who had rejected God's word. This is a sober warning. To all who have not taken refuge in Christ. Who have not accepted that invitation to come to him. But the invitation is there to come to him, to not refuse the gracious words of the gospel. But for those who have heard, for those who have accepted that invitation, who have fled to Christ for refuge, who are trusting in him, even in the midst of uncertainty and pain and trial and suffering, this is good news. Listen again to what Ryle has to say. He says, let believers think of this and take comfort that he who sits upon the throne is in that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd their high priest, their elder brother, their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. See, there will be a hiding place for all believers in Jesus on that day. He will be their hiding place. He will be their refuge when he comes in his glory. God will judge. He will destroy all wickedness and all injustice. And at one point, his wrath was justly laid against all sinners. 
all sinners like you and like me. But for those who are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. For those who are in Christ, this day will be a day of mercy and of joy. So take refuge in Christ today. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sober reminder from Scripture of what that day will be like when you come again in your glory. And we know that we have no other hope. There's no other name under heaven by which we could be saved from this, uh, this wrath to come other than you. But what a wonderful, what a, uh, a marvelous salvation we have. that You have extended that invitation to us. All who come unto you, you will no wise cast out. You've received all who have come. And so we pray that we would take refuge in you today, that we would remember uh, uh, this uh, second advent as we even as we celebrate this uh, first advent of your first coming. May we look to you uh, for all things. May we trust in you in all things, uh, even as we wait upon you. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.